We have the table set before us for an ordinance of divine service of the New Testament. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the communion of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a very ambitious project to preach a sermon in a different way than usual. I am going to read in the book of the law of God distinctly and give the sense and we're going to move on. I'm only going to hit the high points. I want to emphasize the blood, the blood and the blood that was used under that old covenant that has been replaced by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and which we look back at through the communion cup. I want to emphasize that access to God was closed and forbidden, except for the high priest once a year. I want to emphasize that the Old Testament and its sacrifices only remembered sin. It didn't remember the forgiveness of sin. It only remembered sin. And I want to show that the animal bodies, and there were millions of them, the the millions of animal bodies were replaced by one body that God prepared for Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Hebrews is written to convince believing Jews not to go back to Old Testament worship. The book of Hebrews is a comparison of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so in this chapter of chapter 9 and the first 22 verses of chapter 10, we are going to see that comparison. And what you want to focus on is the amount of blood under that Old Testament that was a shadow a picture, a pattern of the blood that would have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And to realize that we get to take a cup of wine and through that, remember blood shed once for all. And blood that was the blood of the Son of God, not of an ox or a goat or a sheep. Follow with me. I'm going to read the first ten verses. To begin, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, 
which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. I have given you a handout to help you grasp these first ten verses very plainly. In that handout, you can see the courtyard of the tabernacle of Israel, where there was a brazen altar and a laver. You would come in the entrance facing west with your back to the east and the rising sun, and that's where you brought your sacrifices to worship God. Now, if you proceed past the brazen altar and past the laver, which is the outer court, you come to the tabernacle proper, which is here called, there's two compartments of it. There was the tabernacle called the sanctuary and the tabernacle called the holiest of all. When you came into the first part that was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, and these dimensions are given to us in the Old Testament, you had the table of showbread, the candlestick, and the altar of incense. The priests would go into that first 30 by 15 section every day. They went in there every Sabbath day and put out a new set of loaves of showbread. They went in every night and lit the candlestick so the candles were burning perpetually before the Lord. And they offered incense on the altar of incense every day. So every day, the priests of God went into that first section called the sanctuary. That second little section, which has the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat over it where the two cherubim were, the high priest went into that once a year with blood on a very special occasion called the Day of Atonement in which they had two goats, one bullock, and a ram that they offered for special sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of the people and send one of the goats away as a scapegoat. He would go into that last section, the holiest of all, and apply blood that would be the Day of Atonement make sanct- and sanctify the people for their sins for another year. It only lasted a year. The passage that we have just read tells us that this furniture, this Ark of the Covenant, this place where God dwelt on the mercy seat was closed. All of this is to give us a picture that it was closed to men. They could engage in the worship of God of lighting candles and burning incense and putting showbread out on a table. But the actual presence of God was closed except for once a year for a man to come in with blood. And he did that year after year after year, meaning that peace had not been made with God yet because there was being a remembrance of sins on an annual basis and he would have to go in and do it all over again. As I mentioned earlier this morning in the first sermon, we have the word signify again. It is used throughout the Bible. And the signification, what is signed to us in sign language, if you will, by this picture that you're looking at on the handout, is that you could not go to God. You could not go to God, and the priest could not go to God. The high priest would go to him once a year, and he would have to take in blood for his own sins, and then take in blood for the sins of the people showing that the way to God was not open yet. We live under a better covenant. 
No wonder it says those things were weak and beggarly. No wonder it says our covenant is more perfect. It is good things to come. It is a better covenant. It has a better priest, a better mediator. Instead of Moses, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at that tabernacle that is 45 feet long and 15 feet wide, and you look behind the altar of incense, there was a veil there. Now this little tent that Moses threw was small. Solomon enlarged it greatly, and we have his dimensions. But even Solomon's temple was torn down, and it was replaced by Zerubbabel and added on to significantly by Herod the Great. So that the Holy of Holies was quite large, and the temple was quite large. Remember, the devil took Jesus up onto a pinnacle of that temple, and it was a long way down. And there was a veil in that temple that was measured, that everyone knows the size of it because it was recorded by those that took care of it. It was 60 feet high and 40 feet wide and 4 inches thick. Before any one of them would be hung and they were replaced, when they were hung, before they were hung, they would be tested by horses to see if they could be pulled apart. That veil could not be pulled apart. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, tore it from top to bottom in half, opening the way up to God. If you were not of the tribe of Levi and a son of Aaron, which made you a priest, if you were not, you had to stay out here in the outer court. If you were a priest, but you weren't the high priest, you could only get into the first sanctuary. And the high priest could only go into the holiest of all once a year with blood for his sins and for the sins of the people. This type of religion, candles, showbread, incense, animal blood, animal bodies, every day, hundreds of animals, millions, over the 1,500 years that this form of worship was the true worship of God in the earth was an ugly religion. It was a terrible religion. It was a ceremonial religion that never took away sins and it did not make the person that did the worshiping with a good, clean conscience because he knew his sins were not yet forgiven. That's why we have in that ninth verse that we just read that this kind of religion could not make the person's conscience clean and perfect. He still had a consciousness of his sins. Fifteen hundred years This is the way God was worshipped. It was imposed on them. They did not ask for this kind of worship. No one would ask for the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And that Reformation I mentioned earlier today, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, introducing a new way of worshipping God in spirit, not in animals, not not in a tent, but in spirit and in truth. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. I'll read two verses. But Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. Amen. Eternal redemption. 
not purging you so that you can continue living for another year, but eternal redemption of your soul. Notice that it says Christ has become a high priest of good things. These were not good things. These were things that could never put away sin, and they were imposed upon the Israelites until Jesus would come. And notice it says, by a greater, in verse 11, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. That's just a rag tent. David knew it was a rag tent. That's why he was so convicted to build a temple, because he felt bad that God was living in a tent. It's just a rag. And so the apostle says to those Hebrews, but Christ has come a high priest of good things, and He's ministering in a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands like that thing. And I don't care if a veil was four inches thick. I don't care if it was 60 feet tall and 40 feet wide. And I don't care if horses couldn't pull it apart. There is a better tabernacle, and it's in heaven. And that's where Jesus Christ serves as our priest. And He didn't take in the blood of goats and calves. He went in with His own blood. And how many times did He go in? Does verse 12 tell us? Once. He entered into the holy place. And what did He accomplish? Our eternal redemption. He doesn't offer eternal redemption. He obtained eternal redemption for us. As was read to us earlier from Isaiah 53 and 11, God saw the travail of His soul and was satisfied. And we were redeemed. Look at the improvement of our religion over the religion of the Old Testament. Our worship against their worship. Jesus didn't go into a man-made tabernacle. He went into the very presence of God. Jesus didn't take the blood of animals. He took His own blood. Jesus doesn't have to do it every year. He did it once. And He doesn't leave us with a bad conscience because He obtained eternal redemption for us. The next two verses. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? These dead works here are Jewish works. These dead works are taking lambs to Jerusalem and entering into that beautiful temple and having them offered by the Levitical priesthood. But Paul calls them dead works. And he's telling these Hebrews, don't go back to that religion. Those are dead works. And he appeals to them to reason that if the blood of bulls and of goats could sanctify Israelites enough that they could continue living for another year, how much more... Should the blood of Christ purge our consciences and give us a good conscience? This right here is why we believe in believers' baptism. Because the Bible tells us that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. And how do we get that good conscience? We hear about the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ was never offered to sinners. The blood of Jesus Christ was offered to God. Look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God? To God. 
Jesus took His blood and by the Spirit went into the presence of God and offered what He had done to God as a sacrifice. He was a priest for you and me. The Old Testament priest offered the blood of animals and it would save their lives for another year. Jesus offered His own blood and God accepted it for the elect. And all of them obtained eternal redemption in that transaction that took place in the tabernacle, not pitched by man, but pitched by God in heaven. Verse 15. I'll read three verses. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. These three verses describe New Testament religion and the giving of eternal life as a last will and testament of God. When a man makes up his will, it is called the last will and testament of John J. Doe. While that man is alive, the will has no force at all. It's a piece of paper in the safety deposit box at the local branch bank. But when that man dies, it puts that into force because that's what a testament is. It's a man who promised things to his beneficiaries while he was alive but they are not given or transferred until he dies. God promised eternal life before the world began. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He promised that eternal life. He didn't offer eternal life. He promised eternal life to the elect that he had chosen out of Adam's fallen race and given to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that could not go into effect as a last will and testament until he died. And God cannot die. So He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who did die and put that promise into force. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the New Testament. The Old Testament was, do this and live for another year. Then do it again. And then do it again. The New Testament is, God promised eternal life before the world began, and Christ died to put that last will and testament into force. And those who are called receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And the called are those that have been appointed to eternal life by God the Father. You know that we could preach for a long time on every one of these sections. But that is not for today. We want the high points And I want you to see the necessity and the importance of blood and death and how Jesus Christ settled all that once for all. Verse 18. I'm going to read through 23. Hebrews 9, 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle 
and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Amen. The patterns of things in the heavens is the Old Testament. Verse 23 is describing the Old Testament. It was necessary that the patterns of the things that are done in heaven were purified with all the blood sprinkling of the Old Testament. But the apostle ends up by saying, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The heavenly things themselves are purified and sanctified with the blood of Christ, not with the blood of animals. But notice that even that first testament, and that first testament was something dependent upon you. Do and live. Do and live. And then do it again. And don't fail in doing it while you're at it. And don't forget any one of the 813 rules while you're at them. Do and live. Even that testament was put into force by the sprinkling of blood because God was showing that blood was necessary for any covenant that had to do with sin because death is necessary. And that's why animal after animal after animal died. It's blood proving that it was dead and that blood was sprinkled over everything under Old Testament religion. And so even though they only had a pattern of things done in heaven, the things that we understand as basic to our religion, though they only had a pattern, it was still involving blood because even that pattern was put into force by the blood of animals. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment... So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ sanctified the last will and testament of God and the new covenant of God with His own blood, which is what verse 23 was telling us, in that the things in heaven should be purified with better things than the blood of animals which purified the patterns done on earth. I hope you followed that long sentence. But Jesus Christ has appeared in the presence of God for us once. The Old Testament high priest had to do it over and over again. Just as a family, you would go to worship over and over and over. And then you would die. And the next generation would go over and over with that high priest going in once a year, and it would never put away sin. But Jesus Christ in the end of the world, notice, we are in the end of the world, because Jesus called it that 2,000 years ago. Paul called it that. 
He appeared once and took His blood into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice how in verse 26, it says that if His new covenant had been anything like the old covenant, then He must have suffered often since the foundation of the world. Why is the foundation of the world brought in? Because that's when the promise of eternal life was given. And if the promise of eternal life was given upon sacrifices like the old covenant, then Jesus would have had to suffer over and over from the foundation of the world. But He only had to appear once in the end of the world. You do not appreciate fully the coming of Jesus Christ because you don't fully appreciate the law. The law was a schoolmaster to teach us something. We wanted a better sacrifice than animals because it never put away sin. Catholic heretics, the great enemy of Christianity, Roman Catholicism, they use their altars instead of heaven. They claim that they re-offer Jesus Christ on their altars in every Mass. They repeat over and over, Mass after Mass, a once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus ended. They substitute an unbloody sacrifice. They admit they have no blood, and they call it an unbloody sacrifice of Jesus. Yet they claim that the wine they drink is the body, blood, soul, and divinity... And the cracker that you eat is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. They make it an unbloody sacrifice, and they deny His intercession by calling themselves priests. What heresy! Forget heresy! What blasphemy! For the popes of Rome and the priests of Rome to think that in their altars, in their temples, by their priests by an unbloody sacrifice that they have to repeat forever has anything to do with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His was done by Himself as the priest one time, and it made atonement for sins forever. And it was very bloody. It was His own blood taken and presented to God by the Holy Spirit. We have a high priest and a sacrifice who's one and the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a high priest that happens to know the judge quite well. He happens to be his son. Is that glorious? Who needs a priest? There is no priest. To me, the basic fundamental flaw of Roman Catholicism, and none of them can see it, is that there is no such thing as a priest in the New Testament. Forget all the other ancillary arguments. We have one priest. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's in heaven right now interceding for us. He took one sacrifice of blood in one time. It was His own blood and it obtained eternal redemption for us. Not temporary redemption, eternal redemption. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible 
that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Praise the Lord that we live in the New Testament. But those poor people had that imposed upon them. Oh, David wanted to see his son. David knew that the covenant that was going to bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ was all his salvation and all his desire. He knew it wasn't down at the tabernacle. He knew it was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, look what it says about the Old Testament. It says it wasn't even a good picture of the truth. It was just a shadow. If I take a picture of you, that shows quite a few of your details. But because it's not animated, it's not nearly as good as meeting you. But Paul here says the Old Testament wasn't even a good picture of the new. It was just a shadow. And if I look at your shadow on the ground, it doesn't compare to a picture, does it? Because it doesn't show any details. The Old Testament was pitiful, is my point. The New Testament is glorious. And though there was a shadow there of things that were coming, we live with those good things. They had to shed the blood of animals over and over again that could never put away sin. We are about to partake of a cup of wine that represents blood that was shed once for all and put away sins forever. And our Lord Jesus Christ, our priest, is coming for us without sin. Oh, that high priest under Israel... Every time you saw him, he was coming with sins. Every time he approached that scapegoat and put his hands on it, what was he putting there? The sins of the people. Our high priest is coming, and he has put sins away forever. All that bloodletting, all that bloodshedding, even though that blood was required for the Old Testament, required for that covenant of works, it's been fulfilled perfectly by the blood of Christ in the covenant of grace. And we just remember that blood that was shed one time and covered sins forever. What a religion to remember sins and not have them put away. Do you know what our religion is? It's a remembrance not of sin, but of a Savior. It's to remember a Savior who put away sins forever. And He is in heaven at this time. All He asks us to do is to assemble with our families and together the believers come around this table and have the Lord's Supper. And through that cup of wine, we remember the shed blood that was offered one time, not offered to us, offered to God and accepted. But there's more. We have the bread to partake of. So we come to Hebrews 10.5. I'm going to read through 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. 
And this is Paul telling the Hebrews, your own Jewish scriptures tell you that God had no pleasure in all your sacrifices and offerings. And that there was a prophecy of someone coming that God would prepare him a body and that body would be to do the will of God rather than those animals. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, by saying, I come to do thy will, O God, I come to fulfill Psalm 40, he took away the first covenant and established the second covenant. The second covenant based on better promises, a better sacrifice, and a better priesthood, even that of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God's elect were made holy and acceptable to Him by the one-time sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the will of God. Verse 11, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Every priest of the Old Testament, Paul tells the Hebrews, every priest of the Old Testament standeth daily. He's always working. That's why he's standing. He never has a chance to sit because there's always another sacrifice to offer. And they can never take away sins. But this man, the man Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, the one in heaven that's coming for us soon, he offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down because his work was done. He was totally different than these standing priests. He sat down from henceforth expecting that God was going to give him everything that he had promised, including the necks of all his enemies. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering on the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the God-man in the flesh, hath perfected us forever. This is the gospel of the New Testament. It is quite better than the Old Testament. We are not looking for a renewal or a revival or a restoration of the Old Testament in Israel or Jerusalem. We have what goes on in heaven and what took place there. And Jesus offered himself to God and was accepted for our perfection. Verses 15 through 18. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Paul here refers to Jeremiah chapter 31, one of the great millennial passages that God is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The problem is, God made that covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the Lord Jesus Christ. He quoted that passage in Hebrews chapter 8, 
That's why he said, after that he had said before. Paul's repeating it twice for a different purpose. In Hebrews chapter 8, it was to prove that the New Testament is better than the Old because God had said, I'm going to institute a new covenant. Here, he quotes the same words in order to get this part of it. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. If God has forgiven and forgotten the sins of his people, there is no more need for a priest to offer another sacrifice. That's Paul's point. The old covenant is no longer necessary. God has forgiven and forgotten all our sins. That's the purpose of those verses. My last section of verses. This is the application. You know how I like to point out in Ephesians that chapter 3 ends with an amen and chapter 4 begins with a therefore on how we ought to walk based on what God did for us in the first three chapters. Romans does the same thing between 11 and 12. 11, verse 36, ends with an Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God. Here is the break in Hebrews. I have just given you, in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, 18, the fact that the blood shedding of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of His body replaced the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. What should we do because of that? Here's the therefore. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 Having therefore, because of what I've just explained to you, the Son of God took His blood one time into the presence of God and accomplished eternal redemption. I've given you a whole string of reasons, Paul is saying, that your sins have been put away. You have been perfected forever by the blood of Christ. And you should therefore go boldly into the holiest. You don't appreciate those words because you've never stood outside a tent where only the high priest could go into the holiest once a year. You can go into the holiest. I can go into the holiest. I don't need you and you don't need me. I am not a priest in any sense of the word. I am simply a public proclaimer, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go through the blood of Christ. He has opened up the way. Look at verse 20. It says, by a new and living way. There is no more tabernacle. Jesus is in heaven forever with His blood already accepted and we can go straight to Him. You can pray, my heavenly Father, and you can go straight to the throne of grace and obtain help in the time of need because Jesus Christ has opened the way up for you. He has consecrated for us a new and living way. It's not a dead way because the sacrifice and the priest are still alive. 
ever living to make intercession for us. You can go straight to God. No one's ever been able to do that before. Even in the worship of God under the Old Testament. But now we get to go there, each one of us. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You can go right through the veil. This is language that a Hebrew would understand. There's no veil separating you from God. It's been ripped in half. You can go straight into the presence of God. You can go boldly into the presence of God. Yes, we preach the fear of the Lord in the church of Greenville. But we do not preach the fear of the Lord in such a way that He's a monster to us. We preach the fear of the Lord in such a way that we love the Lord Jesus Christ who has gone and ripped that veil in half for us because it was His blood. It was His righteousness. It was His obedience. It was His person. It was His name that's done it all for us. And because of that, we can go boldly to God. You don't need to worry about how you're going. Go the best you can. He'll wash away the rest. He doesn't ask for perfection. He's already received perfection and made you perfect. Or is that what we read or not? He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Jesus did it perfectly. You just come the best that you are. You say, but what about 1 Corinthians 11 that tells me if I partake unworthily, I'm going to bring God's damnation upon myself. Oh, God is no monster in 1 Corinthians 11. The only monsters in 1 Corinthians 11 were the Corinthians. God was no monster. Do you know what those people had done to the Lord's Supper? They had turned it into a gluttonous feast where some of them were gorging themselves and being full and others couldn't even get to the table to have anything and were going home hungry. They weren't even thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were the two faults. No love for each other and gluttons for their own bellies. They were belly worshipers in Corinth and they did not think upon Christ. We are not doing that. We're not even close to Corinth. And we are coming to Corinth today. If you've listened to me and obtained even a little bit from this short sermon to remember the blood that was shed once for us. God is no monster in 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthians were monsters in 1 Corinthians 11. Don't come frightened to the Lord's table. We just read that we should come boldly. He's opened up a new and living way for us. Let us draw near. Are you ready to come to the Lord's table? This is where the Lord wants us to eat. They had ordinances of divine service under the Old Testament. Forget all that stuff. We just have a few ordinances of divine service under the New Testament. And it's right here before us. The Lord's table. This is the Lord's table. This is where the Lord wants us to eat together and tarry one for another. We wait for one another in this church. We aren't like Corinth. Now, I'm not going to let you out of 1 Corinthians 11 entirely whole if you have sin right now on your hearts that you have not confessed because it says, let a man examine himself. Then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. I'm not going to let you out if you haven't thought about Jesus Christ at all because he said, this do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. Let's make sure that we've confessed our sins and that we are coming remembering the blood that was shed one time. You don't have to come fearful. 
come boldly. Oh, the fearful work has already been done. The fearful work was when the Son of God hung on the cross of Calvary and God forsook Him. That was the fearful part. That's all over. You say, but what if I come and I've forgotten some sin? I want to tell you about a God in heaven that knows about it and has washed it with the blood of Jesus Christ because you are already perfect in the sight of God. Let us draw near with a true heart. Is your heart true today? Do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you prefer the world? Let us draw near with a true heart. You say, but sometimes I'm pulled and I do like the world. Well, the disciples couldn't even stay awake for an hour to pray with the Savior. And they were the greatest and the foundation of the church of the New Testament. You say, can God forgive me like He forgave them? He does every day. You say, well, how can He do that? Because Jesus offered His blood once for all. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. I'm telling you right now, get rid of your evil conscience. That's a conscience that still feels guilty, that is still afraid of God. Get rid of that conscience. Come boldly because the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that was done 2,000 years ago has purged your sins away forever and our bodies washed with pure water. This is, a, this is an ordinance for those who have been baptized. And yes, I believe those words refer to water baptism because we are not talking about any legal or vital aspect of our salvation, but the practical. The practical being coming to Christ, coming to God with a true heart in full assurance. Those are all practical terms. We have our consciences made good by the blood of Christ that was sprinkled one time for us, and we were dipped in the water, showing the answer of that good conscience to God of how Jesus Christ did purge us from our sins. And so we go to Him boldly and directly at the Lord's Supper. Brethren, families like ours, for 1,500 years, had to go and see blood shed. But we go and remember blood that was shed one time, For all time. One time for all the elect. And it obtained eternal redemption. There's no remembrance of sin at this table. There's just remembrance of a Savior. Come boldly. Know that in heaven at this hour, the full assurance of faith that the man Christ Jesus is ever interceding for us, but He's coming for us soon. He wants us to remember His death until He comes. That by one sacrifice, He put away The old covenant, He put away all our sins. And God has said, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's a wonderful message. Let's come to the table.